And then I started to realize, wow, these acupuncture points actually might be stimulating something that's substantial and physical and tangible. It may not only be a esoteric, energetic, intangible notion that I was taught at school. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I've been thinking about simplicity, and for a while now, as my life is often full of tangled complications, and yet there are these moments when there is a simple sense of clarity, of falling into a sense of knowing what actually matters, and I wonder at how it is that simplicity can hold such a deep sense of completeness. Simplicity is not about lacking. It's about having entirely enough and without complication. I recently had an email conversation with a geological listener, and she had this to say. I was lucky to be raised by a Depression-era grandmother who insisted that I learn to drink coffee without milk and sugar because, well, you never know. We washed out Ziploc bags and always mended socks, even when we could buy a pack of 20 for five bucks at Costco. We learned to garden, take walks when we were mad or sad, drink chicken soup when we were sick, and listen to classical music on the radio while we baked cookies on Sunday afternoons. Those experiences honed a skill in me to have the ability to find happiness in the darkest of corners. I had a Depression-era grandpa myself. He rarely went to the hardware store. Not that he was unwilling to spend money. He was on cars, on travel, good cigars. But when it came to nuts, bolts, latches, cotter pins, he had a habit of keeping and sorting and storing. Recycling was not something you did for the environment. It was simply a part of a life of attentiveness to small matters. Counter to what our media-driven world is trying to sell us, happiness and contentment rarely come from buying a product or a service. It hardly ever comes from outside. More often, it's a kind of internal recalibration. You won't find it in an app on your so-called smart device. It's not something that comes in a pill or a smoothie form. And it's not on a clickbait list of things you need to start doing right now. More often, cultivation of simplicity comes from reattuning our nervous system to the slow undulations of nature, allowing ourselves into the pace and tempo of life outside the ideas that float through our minds. It's more about abiding than striving, inhabiting rather than chalking up a streak on your lifestyle app. I'm not suggesting, or at least I don't think I'm suggesting, a nostalgic return to an imagined bucolic time. I suspect, and this comes from clinical experience, that most of us live in a time frame constructed of should and comparison. And so we miss the sustenance that comes from the natural pace of one heart connecting to another. My patients usually want to heal faster than the pace of nature, and I want to accomplish more than what realistically can be allotted in eight hours. I don't know if this is a uniquely modern malaise, but I pump up against it all the time. My mind moves at the speed of my cell phone, but my body, and more importantly, my spirit, those inhabit a slower timeline. And it's the slower tempo that gives me glimpses into the simplicity that allows for having enough and without complication. For you neurology geeks, I've got a conversation coming right up with Pony Chong. You're going to get a clear-eyed view on his perspective on how acupuncture points relate to the nervous system. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. It's fun to see how modern science so often collaborates what acupuncturists have been saying for centuries. All right, friends, let's get into some geeky neurology in Chinese medicine. Pony Chong, welcome to Geological. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm so happy to have you here. I ran into you a few years ago. You were in St. Louis for the uh, Medical Acupuncture Association. You were sharing your amazing dissection information and neurology and acupuncture points. And it was mind-blowing. So I'm so happy to have this opportunity to get deeper into it with you. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I remember meeting you too. And uh, it's funny how we have uh, common uh, acquaintances and friends. And uh, it's really only one degree of separation away. You know, the Chinese medicine world, is it's actually very narrow. You're right. It's like one at the most two degrees of separation. It's it, That's just the way it is. So neurology. I'm curious to know how you got into neurology because when I look at your website, I see that you spent a lot of time studying herbs. You did an apprenticeship in Taiwan. You spent time studying Kampo in Japan. So you've got this big herbal background I'm kind of curious about that. I want to dip into it at some point in our conversation. I'm wondering how you got from herbal medicine 
to slicing bodies apart. <laughs> well, well, obviously you've been doing your background searches, okay? So I feel a little nervous. You're like the CIA, okay? Um, but uh, oh, I'm not. I'm not as good <laughs> as the CIA. All I do is look at people's websites. I mean, think about it, right? You, you know, if a patient refers somebody to you, that person is still going to go look at your website. Correct. Right? So of course, yes, when I decided to study Chinese medicine, my whole intent and my passion was focused on herbal medicine. It's just one of those things, maybe I was exposed to certain Chinese cinema and that affected the way I, I perceive Chinese medicine. Might be a little bit different because I was born in Taiwan and didn't come to the West until I was 10 years old. So a lot of that early imprinting had already happened at that age. So unlike uh, my my North American practitioner counterparts that have, might have been exposed to Chinese medicine primarily through acupuncture, because that was, was what was very different in the West compared to conventional medicine. For me, my exposure to Chinese medicine was herbal medicine. You know, I saw, you know, even in movies like um, The Curse of the Golden Flower, a Hollywood version of um, a Chinese martial art movie, there are scenes where the doctor would take the pulse and prescribe some herbs and things like that. So for me, very early on, like my impression of what a Chinese medicine physician is, is actually a herbalist. So I actually was had no interest in acupuncture. So I like to make the joke and say that, um, you know, had I had Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, what I attended, my master's degree, offer purely a herbal program, because as you know, most schools either offer just acupuncture or acupuncture plus OM. There was not an ob a stream where you could just take OM. Uh, so, and you were just doing OM. You were just studying herbs at that time. No, I'm, what I'm saying is, like, had there been a school that offered mm. only OM, I would probably be the only you student. You would have been there. But there isn't right. that option. So I took acupuncture almost because I had to. There was no other choice. Okay, so I was like the kind of like the reluctant acupuncturist. That just goes to show how strange and I guess harmonious life is that I would now embark on a totally acupuncture route. And that's kind of like what I'm starting to become a little bit more well-known for is the acupuncture instead of the herbalist. I spent a lot of time studying herbal medicine. My primary interest was, was starting uh, treating dermatological problems. And I studied with Mazen Akafaji. And then I went to Shanghai to do internship at the um, Shuguang Hospital, where I shadowed the chief of TCM dermatology there for a couple of months. My, you know, my whole heart and soul was herbal medicine. <laughs> And, and, uh, and in, in fact, uh, in Canada, from Toronto, Canada, where I am, our profession is a little bit more behind compared to the U.S. And it's interesting kind of how East Coast is always a bit slower than the West Coast. So if you think in terms of the history of the legislation, you know, in the West, in the U.S., the same thing. In Canada, the same thing. Ontario is about 15 years behind British Columbia. It's kind of interesting how that works out. So uh, the reason why I'm talking about all this is because I was kind of considering myself a little fortunate having studied in the U.S. In a way, I was a little bit more ahead in terms of my understanding of the maturation of the profession in North America, at least. As a Canadian, I, I got to see what it was like, what the Americans are doing. And as a student, I was exposed to um, the idea of lab testing or organic Chinese herbs that... You know, a lot of practitioners in China don't even know about, but certainly very few practitioners in Canada know about that. But because I went to school at Pacific College, we had collaborations with um, uh, suppliers that supply herbs of that quality. Because I have, I'm a herbalist at heart, I wanted to offer that to my fellow practitioners. Well, first of all, I, I use lab testing organic herbs as much as I can. And then, uh, but if I was going to go through the trouble of importing all that, I might as well offer it to other people, other practitioners here. So that's a little bit of kind of a side of what I, what I also do on the herbal side. So it's kind of a big segue, but coming back to the acupuncture side now. So I went to school to study TCM style of acupuncture. You know how this whole, this whole notion, whether people agree or disagree, that TCM acupuncture is a bit more herbalized approach to acupuncture. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard that that claim before and yeah, it's it's one of the common criticisms people have lots of criticisms about tcm but you know that's one of the criticisms yeah so i'm super curious to hear your point of view well see because i had a herbalist mindset going into chinese medicine for me my bias for whatever it's worth is that i would approach the internal problem with herbal medicine so for me acupuncture was not my go-to for internal problems not that acupuncture cannot treat that. It just, 
I already know how to treat that with herbal medicine. I was going to go, you know, learn something else to totally replace it. I could, I could learn it as a complement to it. Right. Uh, so for yeah, me, you've already got something that exactly. works and it works yeah, well. You know? Why, why go add something else? Exactly. So for me with acupuncture, I wanted to do something that I, I couldn't do very well with herbal medicine. And for me, that was a nice balance. Because my training was primarily TCM-based up until the time I had just graduated, I've gone on to do some more classical herbal stuff. I wasn't very prepared, I felt, to treat pain and you know range of motion issues with acupuncture. Maybe because my, my heart wasn't there, okay? Well, you know, actually, I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> because I hear a lot of people say, I got out of school, I've got these ideas, but when I go to actually do it, it doesn't seem to work that well. Yeah, I mean, let's say somebody has a crackly sound in their knee, right? And you might think that, okay, that's liver blood deficiency, not nourishing the sinews, right? So it's not incorrect for you to like needle liver eight and, you know, spleen six, turn five yin, turn five blood, Maybe throwing your stomach 36 in there because it combines both spleen 6 to tonify blood and, and to try to treat the underlying reasons for it. But, you know, even herbal medicine takes time to restore that liver blood. So I think acupuncture takes at least just the same, if not more. We can only heal as quickly as the speed of physiology. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whether it's TCM physiology or Western medicine physiology, right? Physiology it's, is physiology. Exactly. So, yeah. I definitely felt that I was underprepared. Um, I was very well prepared to be an internist, and uh, but I was underprepared to be able to offer pain relief and you know what I call physical medicine or external medicine. I needed to educate myself and uh, and improve myself. So that's why I started to take some courses in manual therapy, physiotherapy, that type of courses. And I even enrolled in a few more West, quote-unquote Western approaches to acupuncture, such as dry needling type of courses, um, which is, uh, I want to clarify, is because uh, that term is, is a little bit confusing sometimes. But what I'm referring to is Treville's trigger point, malfactor trigger point releasing approach to acupuncture. And then I also, we're very lucky being from Toronto, we actually have a couple of very well-known biomedical acupuncturists in the Toronto area. And uh, I, w I was able to study with people. I was indirectly influenced by Dr. Joseph Wong, who is the author of New Anatomical Acupuncture. And uh, one of his more successful students, Dr. Alejandro Loriega from McMaster University. So these people help introduce me directly or indirectly to more of a neuroanatomical worldview to acupuncture. And Dr. Joseph Wong has passed away in 2017, but he was an MD physiatrist, but also studied Chinese medicine in China. So it really brought the um, sort of integrative approach. Very much what you were looking for. Um, yeah. Uh, like, like This is like the perfect guy for you to study And he's right with. here in Toronto, right? So <laughs> In your backyard. Yeah. So I was just looking for ways to improve my understanding to the acupuncture. Why? Because even though, I, like I said, I wasn't totally passionate about acupuncture at that time, but after I helped my patient with herbal medicine, they would ask me, you know, I have this pain. Can you help me? Do you also do acupuncture? They also like just because of the dermatology, they will always assume that I only did dermatology. Do you also treat, you know, digestive problems? Do you also treat pain problems? And I got to realize that, hey, you know, the general public, whether they're Eastern background or Western background, kind of have this expectation that if you're a TCM practitioner, you have to know how to do acupuncture. And uh, right, and if you're an acupuncturist you should know how to treat pain because acupuncture is so famous for treating exactly. pain. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. as I mentioned, I didn't feel very well prepared. I, you know, I was applying the stuff that I had learned, which is a more of a TCM internal, internalist or herbalist approach and wasn't really getting the results. So that's why I got into this neurological area. And then how did this then lead to all this continued education? Now I'm now uh, getting myself out to my years in. <laughs> um, so... You know, it's it. You're kind of faded when you're a doctor, Chinese medicine doctor in particular, that you're probably going to be studying your entire life. Yeah, and I'm a, like a professional nerd, so this is like it's the ideal profession for me. Just always studying all the time. It's perfect, yeah. right? Oh, I get to study my whole life. Lucky. Yeah, you. yeah. yeah. It is lifelong learning. I 
was inspired by the work, um, by the learning I had gotten from Dr. Loriega and the work done by uh, Dr. Joseph Wong. And then I started to realize, wow, these acupuncture points actually might be stimulating something that's substantial, physical, and tangible. It may not only be a esoteric, energetic, intangible notion that I was taught at school. Because what are the chances that these acupuncture points just happen to be at exactly very important nerve trunk and branches? It could be a coincidence, but it would be like you just throw a dart at a dartboard with your eyes closed and somehow landing in the bullseye. Okay? It could be possible, but very improbable. What was it that first clued you in that acupuncture points were at these very significant junctures of nerves? Well, it was started all by the work of Dr. Joseph Wong. He had already characterized a few of the important nerve trunks that the acupuncture points have been located, uh, have been uh, uh, transmitted and passed down. All I've done is simply sort of filling the blanks. So once I realized that, you know, this is probably not a coincidence, let's take a look and just from head to toe, complete all this work. You call me a little bit of obsessive compulsive personality. Good thing to have in a yeah. doctor. <laughs> okay. So I just systematically went through every single point, pulled out the anatomy books uh, that was available. And I quickly realized that not a lot of these anatomy textbooks, first of all, they're very, very old now. They're not really accurate in terms of surgical accuracy because um, the illustrator's objective is not the same as um, acupuncture's objective or so, and even not even close to the surgeon's perspective. I mean, first of all, this is a two-dimensional media on print that you have to try to communicate a three-dimensional idea. What if there are some structures that are behind one another? You couldn't show that, right? Unless you have like a transparency leaflet they can peel off to see that what's behind there. You cannot re appreciate depth. So what I've noticed is that a lot of illustrators quote-unquote cheat. They will laterally or medially displace a structure that's deep to some other structure in order to expose it so it's visible on, on paper. So you can see it, but it might be actually much deeper than superficial, you wouldn't catch. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I've heard of acupuncture channels. I've heard of people talk about the meridians themselves, that some like the liver, they go way deeper than something like the stomach, right? Or you've got like the spleen and the liver, and they, they run a very similar trajectory. But I've heard people talk about one being like the liver is deeper than the spleen, that kind of an idea. So that, that makes sense yeah. to you. Yeah. And I, so I started to realize I couldn't put all my eggs in one basket with your typical anatomy textbooks. So then that led to, okay, let's go to PubMed and actually pull up. Fortunately, because I have a prior doctoral level research background, I'm, I'm very um, experienced with pulling up journals and accessing them and, and searching yeah. for them. And you're a geek, so of course you love PubMed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was able to pull up primary source papers, and a lot of these papers were papers um, published by surgeons. Surgeons were trying to avoid accidentally cutting nerves. So they had a real vested interest because of malpractice lawsuit purposes. They um, would dissect a whole bunch of cadavers, oftentimes in the range of like 20 cadavers or so, and then um, sort of figure out, quote unquote, the average pathway of nerves so that they could avoid them in their operations. And those- so This is what you're talking about when you say surgical perspective. Yes. That, that being very different from the illustrators or even just basic anat you know, learning anatomy. Right. These guys really want to know where stuff is in- three-dimensional world. Exactly. And if you look at the textbooks, a lot of times they don't focus on the cutaneous nerves so much. It's a bit more emphasis on, on like the, um, the motor nerves. But the surgeons, when they cut, they have to worry about everything. So even the, where they cut in the skin could accidentally transect a cutaneous nerve. Then that would cause numbness, tingling, or even pain. So they usually want to figure out where is the best place to cut. So I found those papers very, very useful for me to actually get correct nerve path information so that I can try to align them with the acupuncture points. But then, so it doesn't answer your question about why I got into dissection myself, okay? Um, the reason... Oh, I, I can see how you got into dissection. You're, you're going deep, no pun intended, but, you know, deep into the anatomy where things are. You're researching things that surgeons are talking about. But 
because you want to know this stuff for yourself, you need to get into bodies and see where it is yourself. Yes. First of all, the the anatomy textbooks wasn't cutting it. No pun intended. <laughs> the, <laughs> the surgical sources were great, but you know, surgeons were not interested in acupuncture points, right? So I ha- it was still a lot of interpretation. And you know, there are certain regions of the body that are not commonly operated on, but there are acupuncture points there. So then there was a need for me to actually step up to the actual surgical precision level and do it myself to fill in the rest of the gaps I couldn't. And also just to confirm some of the original interpretation based on just stuff on paper, right? So uh, you need to confirm it in, in a real specimen and then fill in the gaps for which the literature has, has gaps. So that's what got me into that area. Again, since I was going to do this and I've, I've been teaching this a little bit, um, and it certainly informed my practice. It changed the way I needle. It changed the way I think about what I should be targeting when I needle. And not just that, what is the dirty response? If you just if you stimulate me a point that happens to a sensory nerve, then there's a paresthesia you can reproduce. So that's the, imagine you know we've all had the experience of being needled in spin nine and getting that zing down the legs. Well, that's the correct dirty sensation for spin nine. What about all the other ones? So that would differ depending on what nerves are in that location or what muscles are in that location. So I was able to systematically characterize proper dirty sensation associated with each acupuncture point. Each point. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Now, you say it changed your practice. What did it change it from and what did it change it into? How did it, how did it shift things for you? Because it sounds dramatic, what happened for you. Well, first of all, I got more interested in acupuncture and, and became actively promoting myself and advertising myself with doing more acupuncture. And the funny thing is that I have designed my clinic to be more of a herbalist clinic. I was fortunate to have be able to design a space from scratch. Like it had no walls. I could just, you know, design it by, by myself. And the big, the front part of my clinic was, was a dispensary. Like you walk in, it looks like a herbal shop, you know, that mm-hmm. was like my, my, cause it is an herbal yeah, shop. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and because I didn't have acupuncturist mindset, I didn't partition my clinic into a bunch of little acupuncture rooms that would be very feasible for a high volume acupuncture practice. So I quickly ran into a wall because I was like, I had other, other associates in the clinic. We were, you know, having running out of rooms. That, that was a problem I didn't expect. So, so it's a good problem to have. Yeah, so advice too busy, need more space. Advice for people that are like just graduating. Don't think that you're always going to be specializing in the thing that you think you're, you're passionate about. Okay. Make room for the possibility that you might expand your interest. So I started treating more pain problems. And because I now have this peripheral nerve outlook to acupuncture points, I naturally became more interested about how I can treat problems that wasn't just myofascial, but perhaps nerve-related, like nerve entrapment, for example, or take it to the next level, the connection between the peripheral nervous system to the central nervous system, how I can then now treat or think about ways how I can treat central nervous system problems. You know, so in school we learn about scalp acupuncture and things like that. How can I combine 
what I've done with the peripheral nervous system with the scalp acupuncture central approach to create a more balanced or more uh, holistic approach to treating patients with stroke, uh, recovering from stroke sequelae, Parkinson's, and so on and so forth. So I have a, in, so my practice has now sort of grown into a second specialization, even though in Canada we're not supposed to use that term, specialization, into the neurological sphere. I'd like to hear a little bit more about this, uh, in particular, dealing with nerve entrapment. I mean, this is something that usually people go to a surgeon to have a nerve released. Correct. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm curious to hear about your take on this with treating this with acupuncture. Yeah. I do feel this is definitely something that is not something you uh, you hear a lot of a practitioner talk about or not, definitely not that, as far as not too many um, continuing education providers teach this kind of information. And, you know, in my typical promotional phrasing for the entrapment workshop that I teach is exactly like you said, usually people think this is a surgical solution. Let me just give you a few brief examples. Why don't we talk about carpal tunnel syndrome? Because it's so well known, right? So the carpal tunnel has within a tunnel 10 different entities. Okay, there's a tendon for flexor pollicis longus, four tendons from flexor digitorum superficialis, four tendons from flexor digitorum profundus, so that's nine so far, plus the median nerve itself. So 10 structures within this tunnel. The tunnel gets blamed for this problem, okay? So the surgical intervention is to release the roof of this tunnel so that the diameter of the tunnel could be expanded in a way so that the nerve that's only one of the nine things in there will no longer be irritated. But how does a, an acupuncture, so how do I approach this? I work on not the nerve, okay, or the roof, because the roof is a, is a ligament of fascia that our needles cannot really do too much to, to cut, okay? I try to change the contents of the tunnel so that th there is not adhesion and the tenosynovitis of the tendon sheath of those tendons inside the tunnel. So how would I do that? You don't actually need to needle the, the tendons themselves, okay? I don't think they respond too well to acupuncture. You would needle the muscle bellies, which is a lot more proximal. So think in terms of points, let's say, like lung, lung six, for example, okay? The points that are more proximal, points like um, uh, in the neighborhood of um, heart three, for example. These points are more proximal. These are where the muscle bellies of those, mu of those muscles I mentioned earlier that contributes to the, to, the, um, to the tunnel. When you lengthen those muscles in the tunnel, you will reduce the friction of the tendons that are rubbing against each other or the walls of the tunnel causing tenosynovitis. There's not as much restriction on those tendons. They can relax and create more room in the tunnel. They're, yeah, so I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. changing the walls of the tunnel. I'm simply freeing up the movements of the content and reducing friction that could potentially cause inflammation and then irritation of the nerve there. Even though I say I'm interested in treating nerves, but you know, nerves always exist in the environment of myofascia, we can affect the myofascia to then indirectly affect the nerve. And then if necessary, so that is sort of like the root cause that the, the, the for carpal tunnels is one possible example that the tenosynovitis was irritating the nerve. So we treat the root reason for that. But once I've, I find that once the nerve is irritated, it doesn't just magically de-irritate itself. It tends to be stubborn and stay that way. And so there is reason to needle pericardium six, pericardium seven, and provide light electrical stimulation to what do what I call de-irritate to clean up that nerve area. And then so symptoms will improve immediately. But if you don't address the tenosynovitis or affect the tunnel contents, the problem's gonna come back. So we need to actually look at it from both the root and branch symptom and manifestation perspective. What? I mean, this is TCM 101, yeah. right? Root and branch. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and the nice thing about the uh, the the whole talk about tenosynovitis and the muscle belly, these those things line up with the channel sinews. So in a way, it's still traditional classical uh, Ling Shu chapter thirteen about the channel sinew pathways. I, I attempt to sort of juxtapose the classical theories with the modern dissectional research, and um, to try to create a you know for lack of a better word, more of an integrated, holistic approach to the treatment. Well, it, it sounds like you're also using 
the modern perspectives and our ability to you know look more deeply into the body. This is something that the ancient Chinese didn't have that we do. That's right. And by taking that deep gaze into the body, where things are, how things work, knowing something about Western physiology, you can then overlay something from the Ling Shu for that matter and begin to see how each of these perspectives informs the other. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I'm also known for is um, interpreting the classical passages in a neuroanatomical perspective. I definitely have found that there are numerous examples and excerpts from the classical passages that strongly suggest that uh, the channel theory description they're, they're, they have passed down or the effect of acupuncture needling sensation that being passed down could be interpreted as the, the result of nerves depolarizing or or um, what I call duchi sensation. Okay. Yeah. Nerves depolarizing. I'm not sure what that means. What that means is that when you get that zing, like a little bit of shooting electrical sensation, that's that's the nerve firing. Uh, in the classic, it used the word called emitting. Emitting. Um, so uh, obviously they didn't, know about electricity so they wouldn't use that word you don't use the word we would use today to say that oh, that was an electrical feeling because that didn't have that electricity and you know, like the way we do um so but they use the word called emitting or issuing which is um you know we will never truly know what the the authors of ling shu or the suan were describing right but so all we can hope for is trying to um, make a little bit of sense of it, and and hopefully that can uh, re result in some improvements in our clinical practice. Mm -hmm. I want to stick with the polarizing for just a moment. What is the therapeutic benefit of that occurring? So, I like to answer that from both the east and west perspective. First of all, we learn from our mentors that the dirty sensation is very important, right? In order for the efficacy of the points, whatever the point of that, the fun indication, function indication of, of whichever points it, they are, we have this general uh, accepted uh, notion that uh, you need to get dirty sensation in order to elicit whatever those function indications are. And, you know, dirty sensation is quite varied. Um, you can have you know, warming sensation, you can have a sometimes a propagating shooting sensation, uh, a twitching sensation. When you get that kind of a shooting sensation, then from a traditional Eastern perspective, that would be interpreted as some kind of energy flowing within energetic conduits such as meridians. So from an Eastern perspective, that might be interpreted as something being unblocked. If you, if you try to reduce the pathology, the pathomechanism in Chinese medicine down to one word, it's basically be, be stagnation. So it's the cause of, you know, it could lead to heat, it could lead to whatever other things, but that's a starting point that leads to various pathomechanisms in Chinese medicine. And so to have that propagating sensation, I imagine to ancient um, patients, ancient practitioners, that would be the experience of something flowing, which is counter to the notion of blockage. Okay? So that's the needle from the needler's perspective and the therapist's perspective. Now let's talk about the Western medicine perspective. We now know that when we get that depolarization happening, there, there are neurotransmitters that are involved to make that happen. And at the local tissue level, there are actually releases, there are compounds that are released at the local side of the needling. For example, um, substance P, which is important for, for pain attenuation or pain reduction. There are something so, so CGRP, calcintonin gene-related peptide, regulated peptide. Um, these agents actually promote local vasodilation. In other words, they actually promote local blood flow. Okay. And um, moving, moving blood in exactly. shape, that's a very, that's a, that's a super fundamental, super fundamental. idea that we have. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But scientists now also know which nerves are being stimulated when you needle with acupuncture down to the specific subtype. So apparently type of nerves called A-delta fiber nerves are the ones that our acupuncture needles tend to most uh, stimulate. And we know that that nerve as an afferent, meaning it takes information from the outside to the inside or from the peripheral to the proximal, will bring that information to the spinal segment. So let's say, for example, we need heart seven. That's, you know, ulnar nerve territory. So that's like think C8 to T1 level. So that information brings back 
to see and see one love in your spine. That information is processed locally at the spinal level and sent back down to both sides of the, of the arm, not just one side. Okay, Some of the information goes up to the brain, it's processed, and then sends back down. It can send back down the arm again, or it can send back down to any organs and glands that's also at that segment. So this is how you can have a somatovisceral effect. Basically, it's a relay loop. The information comes into the brain, brain sends it back down to the organ. To Because the body's natural homeostatic abilities, or you call it balancing yin and yang, it will do whatever it needs to do to balance that. Sometimes it just needs the reminder that you need to act, initiate that innate homeostatic or yin yang regulatory mechanism. Now, we know that that happens whether you get a depolarization or electrical sensation or not. Okay? But we also know that more of that happens, at least more of that registers with the brain if you were to feel... If you get the, the Dutch But even if you don't get Dutch it does happen. It, it can still yeah. happen. This is So I remember you talking, mentioning this earlier in our conversation about how you're looking at working with the central nervous system through the peripheral nervous system. And of course, the, the thing that came up for me was, well, golly, isn't that how things way on the periphery would be able to treat things way deep in the viscera? Because if you can get something into the central nervous system, well, the central nervous system is going to take that information and, and use it internally. They're not disconnected. They're intimately connected. There's actually, um, yeah, so I want to touch on this, what you mentioned about how the, the, when you needle in the peripheral, you, it'll be more effective for the visceral. Think back to when you took neurology at uh, Orium School, and um, remember there's something called a homunculus, which is how the sensory and motor cortex is divided in an inverted fashion. You know, the proximal one-fifth is the uh, the, uh, the leg, then the, the middle two-fifth is the arm, and then the, the, the lateral two-fifth is the face. Or that little really weird proportional guy that has like huge hands and big lips, like, you know? Giant thumb. Yes, exactly. So... Think in terms of that. That's a rep because that's a re representation of how dense the innervations are from different parts of the body. Like there's a disproportional amount of inner nerves in around the lips, around the hands, and the and the feet. Step back a little bit and look at distal style acupuncture or five element style acupuncture. You have to use points just below the elbows and the knees. Right, all the antique points. Those points, you know, there are styles that just do that and can treat everything. Right, according to their uh, way of thinking and that's not very far-fetched because those are the parts of the nervous system that are going to get the loudest message to the central nervous system those are the parts of the nervous system that will get the most information to the central then it's up to the central nervous system to then decide whether i want to send information back down to reduce pain or to send information to the organs to regulate their glandular or sympathetic parasympathetic or yin and yang however you want to look at it functions you know, we often have this idea that if you go very distal to where a problem is, you get more leverage on it because it's distal. That's a, that's a very Chinese medicine way of thinking. I'm overlaying that now with what I'm getting from you in this conversation, which is these areas are much more richly enervated. And so it's a lot easier to get a message into the system because there's a, there's a lot more receptors that are listening and are looking to do something with that stimulation. Yeah. I've been known to, to say that if your acupuncture does not have distal points, it ain't Chinese acupuncture. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. So that means you're, you're treating locally, right? Obviously, uh -huh. we try to connect meridians, right? So with a proximal point, which is a distal point, that could be on the same meridian. You know that. So there's there's the, our our meridian based th reasons for that. But you know, su superimposing the idea of the homunculus that the more distal you go, the stronger, the louder the message. It just show you how why the ancient practitioner probably found that was more efficacious and 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 transmitted this way of treating. Yeah. I've got a question that's just popped up in my mind here. Now you've got me thinking about neurology in a way that I don't usually think about it. And what I'm thinking about is how in Chinese medicine, we've got this idea that there's like the tie-in 
channels, right? We got the hand tie-in lung, we got the foot tie-in spleen. We say that they're related because they're at the tie-in level. Or we'll talk about things like, okay, we've got the lung and its uh, foo organ is the large intestine. These things are connected. Are you finding correlates within the neurology that like connect some sort of nerve plexus in the foot with a nerve plexus in the hand that you would be able to like call tie-in or something that's up in the hand that you go, here's large intestine, here's lung, and, and here's some neurological overlaps that we see. Is any of that showing up? Not too much. There, there are a few sprinkles here and there. For example, if you look at um, the points on the liver, we often say that the liver meridian wraps around the genitals, right? And you look at where the, going back to the homunculus idea, so like the a very important point in the, in the liver channel that as a lower point is um, has a direct A-train a access to um, to the genitals. That's, that's a, you never use that word together. I never use that word, those two combination of words together, A-train and genitals. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, you just A-train did. But, the genitals. Okay, yeah. so... So, so for some sort of genital issue. So let's say liver, liver five, okay, because it's a, it's liver a low five point. Super, um, yeah. So let's look at that from that homunculus perspective, right? It's in the foot. The homunculus of the foot is actually right in the midline. So is the genitals right in the midline. So you can see how maybe that works from a homunculus association. Just like how we have this idea that do 20 you know, treats problems on the other side of the body. Right? So the do 20 treats problems on do one, right, or in one area. And we explain that as the microcosmic orbit connection. But look at where do 20 is located, is smack on the part of the homunculus that is mapped to the legs and genital area. So that there's a lot of, um, in a way, they are, I mean, of course, you one could, one would need to really sit down and think through all the points. But there's, it's definitely, a few interesting ones there that really shows you that one possible mechanism that these points are or indication have been passed down is probably through the homunculus or the way that the peripheral information is then being brought back to the central nervous system. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Mm -hmm. Are there any other points that really stand out to you that demonstrate this principle of, of the uh, humunculus and the way that the nervous system is is set up in our body and how it relates to particular points that have a big influence. I mean, you just mentioned liver five. Are there some others that, that seem to have a, a big bang from this particular perspective that you see showing up in your practice a lot? That's, take the example of uh, large intestine four, for example. It's, it's one of the most heavily studied points. Yeah, and it's, a, a, and it's the heavy hitter on the atrium. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> That point is located in the pathway of, um, of the superficial branch of the radial nerve, the superficial branch of the radial nerve, okay? Which um, is corresponding to the brachial plexus. Those, those are all the nerve segments from C5 to T1 that goes to innervate the, uh, the upper extremities. When you needle large intestine four, obviously you'll be stimulating 
the radial nerve because the superficial branches derive from that. But I, as an afferent, at this point of the nervous system, that nerve, that radial nerve is purely just sensory and cutaneous. It does not innervate any muscles anymore. And also look at where it is. It's very distal, right? So approximately to the thumb. You mentioned how the thumb is heavily represented in the, in the homunculus, strongly represented homunculus. So that is a huge loud message. So from that perspective, you know that point where you want to be more bang for your buck just because it is a big representation of the entire brain, right? And uh, so the louder message goes in, more likely that more louder messages can come back down to change your perception of pain and whatnot. Okay, so that is from the homunculus perspective. But from a segmental perspective, what that means right, by the segments of the spine, C5 and T1 is pretty high up on the body, it's in the neck level. When Once you create that information going up to your brain, that information doesn't just affect C5 to T1, it affects everything below that as well. It doesn't affect things above it necessarily, okay? but it will affect everything below it. So, and how and how does that work? How does it that it affects things below but not above? Let me just finish my, my train of thought. So, ah, train of thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So what happens is the information goes to the brain. Okay, They're, they are centers in the brain, so in the midbrain, um, something called the periaqueductal gray nucleus that processes the information and will send neurotransmitters down the, the spine um, to then further release uh, endorphins, different types of endorphins that ultimately reduces our perception of pain. And so that top-down, they call it, or descending attenuation is the medical term, will affect everything down below that. So in a way, LI4 is the painkiller point. It will affect everything down to your foot. It, it can do that, and that actually makes sense, neuro, neurophysiologically speaking. Now, what about uh, it doesn't work so well, things above it, but wouldn't that be contradicting that LF4 is actually supposed to be pain a point for the for a command point for the face, right? The face, face surely is gonna be gotta be. Um, uh, it's above C4, C4 right? So above C5, right? So I don't claim to know everything, but here's what I think is one possibility. Okay. Going back to the homunculus again, the middle two-fifth, which is upper extremity, but it's actually mostly thumb, okay, if you look at it, okay? The thumb is huge, okay, in the in the brain. What's the lower two-fifth? The lower two-fifth is the face. So the thumb is right beside the face. And we now know that the mapping is not very clean cut. There are overlaps. So they are overlap between the upper extremity and the torso. They are overlap between the, the upper extremity and the face. So perhaps that's the reason why large intestine 4 is also a command point of the face because the homunculus of the thumb is so close, right? Adjacent and overlaps with the, with, with, overlaps with the, with the face region. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's pretty exciting, right? Like this is, means it's that super cool. it's super cool. That means, hey, you know, that means it's, for me, at least I like to say, it's okay to study anatomy. It's not... You know, going into the dark side by studying anatomy. Perhaps study, perhaps ancient, I call them ancient accurate anatomists, knew this, passed this information to us, okay? And uh, we have these, these um, protocols or these ways of treating pain and treating different problems that are based on the experience. But we may, we may not understanding exactly how that's happening. We know it works. But what if we actually know it works? Then we would, we would be able to understand when it wouldn't work as well. Or by understanding how it works, we can now actually create our own empirical new approaches that is still in keeping with traditional teaching, but allows us to see problems perhaps that were not as common in ancient times. Yes. And I mean, in a way, kind of reverse engineer. Is it reverse engineer Correct. or yeah. forward engineering? But it, <laughs> I want to come back to the thumb for just a second, and, and then I want to get into the reverse engineering. So we hear about large intestine four in school as being this like heavy hitter, strongly moves chi and blood. We're just talking about the homunculus, the big thumb. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way that I'm thinking about this right now is I could do some kind of a treatment because I want to get at something. But then if I want to like supercharge that, I want to, if I want to supersize it, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. if I want to supersize that, I could just do large intestine four. That is going to totally light up that big part of the brain where the thumb is. 
And now we've got that much more brain and nerve activity paying attention to what we're doing to the other needles. So it's like lighting an afterburner on the rest of the treatment. Correct. Yeah, you can, cer you can certainly layer it that way. Yeah, yeah you could stack it yeah, that way. Yeah, you could stack Okay. All right. Okay. It's, it's great having this neurophysiological way of looking at and thinking about how this stuff works. I mean, I love thinking about it in the classical way, and I love you know, working in my clinic and, and seeing what my hands tell me and, and just you know, learning from my experience. That's, I mean, it's one of the pleasures of being a practitioner is that we get to always learn this way. But being able to stack in this neurophysical anatomy it's just got me thinking in all kinds of other directions, which brings me back to this thing about reverse engineering that if we knew our anatomy better, then we might be able to select points or think about treatments based on, okay, I know if I put a needle in a certain place, it's going to light up the nervous system in a particular way, and I can use that along with the other points that I've selected. Absolutely. So this is why... Once I realized that, hey, you know, ancient point locations are not a coincidence locating at very precise branches of various nerves. And in fact, every single nerve that can safely be accessed, and I don't just mean like your radio nerve or ulnar nerve, I'm talking about down to minute detail, like the deep motor branch or the, you know, the medial branch or the superficial branch of the radio nerve. Every single minute little branch, there is one and exactly one acupuncture point bang on those locations. So I know this is um, just might be the first time some people are hearing about this, and it's hard to you might intellectually understand it, but at a gut level, cannot fully appreciate that. But once I started to appreciate this on a gut level, I realized, wow, that means my job as acupuncturist is to really balance the nervous system or balance the, uh, the meridians, however you want to um, uh, term it. And that made me realize that it's okay. Okay, if ancient acupuncture passed on these points and there's such amazing anatomical specificity, then I better really go and study my anatomy so that I can become a better acupuncturist. That was kind of like a big shift. You were mentioning how I changed my approach. Like for example, there's no contradicting the, the classic. Everything is still, I mean, if anything, you know, sometimes patients tell, the students tell me, you know, I, I kind of feel like, Sadden in a way that it's just kind of quote-unquote reduced to the anatomical now, okay? But I tell them no far from it for me It's like it's amazing how much how 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 did the ancient know this? How did they know stuff that we that there are some branches of nerves that just published 10 years ago that but they knew this at least 2,000 years ago for me It makes me more excited about acupuncture. as you know I was kind of like more of a herbalist to begin with so I got me excited about acupuncture to know that wow, what I'm doing is actually both energetic and anatomical, and they may, that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. In fact, they might actually be mutually synergistic. So at this point, it sounds like you have this, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a three-dimensional synergistic view of nerves in meridians. At this point in the game, this point of your understanding where you've, you know, where you've been, where you've come from, where you are right now, what would you say the acupuncture meridians are? What are the Jing Luo, right? This is a discussion we've had in China, you know, at least in the modern world about Chinese medicine for a long time. Are the meridians real? Are they not? Are they physical structures? Are they not? There's, there's a lot of conversations about that. At this point in time, what's your sense of what an acupuncture meridian is? Okay, I hope I don't. I hope I don't get in trouble. Uh, oh, <laughs> no, we're already in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So um, the train is now derailed. Okay. The train is now derailed. Okay. <laughs> I can only speak from what associations and patterns I've seen based on my research and also limited clinical experience. As I certainly don't have like fifty years of clinical experience. First of all, going back to the classic Ling Shu. Chapter 10 is, is the title of the chapter is called channel, Jing Mai, Channel Vessel. And in that chapter, the various paragraphs describe the channel the distribution, the channel theory that we learn in school, where, where meridians start and end. And before they get into all that, they tell us that uh, Jing Luo lie deep to muscle separations. And they're hidden between muscle separations 
deep and not visible. Okay? So most scholars interpret muscle separation as intramuscular or intramuscular septums. There are papers that have been published from Helene Langevin's group that associate those septums to myofascial connective chains. So there are a whole group of acupuncturists and thinkers, scholars out there that subscribe to the notion that the meridians are these myofascial chains. But let's go back to the classic, what it says. It says that the jinmai is deep to the myofascial chains. You cannot be the myofascial chain and deep to the myofascial chain at all at the same time. You're either one or the other. So this is why, in my humble opinion, I don't think um, primary meridians are myofascial chains. I do think channel sinews could be myofascial chains along the lines of what Thomas Myers has done. So what do we know about the anatomy that are structures that are like deep to intramuscular, intramuscular septums. And those structures are neurovascular bundles. That's the way, and also also the lymphatic system too. Our nervous, our body, in order, it's like the, it's like, um, you know, the the design of the city. You lay down your, your plumbing and electricity side by side because otherwise a lot of work to dig everything and uh, there's only some so much finite space inside the body so these vessels and nerves get lumped together because it's the most efficient way to to convey information or distribute nutrients to different parts of the body and so based on that understanding of anatomy i am more in favor of the notion that the that channels meridians and i, I want to just characterize remind everybody that uh, when we say, you know, I know some people don't like the word meridian, so they like the word channel better. So, but what, however, whichever word you prefer, it, it is always used together as a, as a binome, meaning Jing and Mai or Jing and Ruo together. So, okay, so, so I like to think of that as a neurovascular bundle, neuro and vascular together at the same time. And that would, that could possibly satisfy the description shown in Lin chapter 10 that Jing Mai's or neurovascular bundles are like deep to muscle separation or like deep to intramuscular septums. Now, do they perfectly match the description of the, the, the channel theory perfectly match what we now know about the pathway of these neurovascular bundles? No, they don't perfectly match. They match in a lot of places. Um, they, what has been very interesting for me is that when we learn about lower points, how lower points are supposed to connect interior and exterior relationships or connect exterior interior channels, what has been very, very rewarding in my research is that I have found that there are indeed nerve branches that satisfy that. So at every lower point, it really does, let's say for lung center, for example, that's really cross into the large intestine territory, going from the yin to the yang. Well, the liver fire we talked about earlier, does really go from the medial side. There's a saphenous branch of the of the of the leg. Um, going back to spleen line, we talked about that gives you that zing. The saphenous has a lot of little branches. There's a branch called the inferior anterior branch. It really crosses over from the medial side of the of the shin to the lateral side. So you can conceptualize that as going from the liver to the gallbladder. Every single one of the twelve. Uh, low points really has a nerve that does does that for me that was you know just my mind blowing. mind blowing my mind was yeah blown. yeah it's my blowing. I was like, wow you know uh, train is off track <laughs> it is now actually it's like uh, the speed movie is now fully <laughs> the brake is busted it cannot be stopped okay it's just like going charging down so for me to yeah, wow you know the ancient acupuncture really knew their anatomy i have a very metaphysical side I practice astrology, I practice Feng Shui, which is, you know, probably not the most scientific thing there is. But, so, I was very, in, I was totally comfortable with, with practicing acupuncture in a non-scientific kind of way. But, once I, you know, amassed and realized what was happening from this research, I am left with no choice but to embrace the fact that it really is anatomical. It's not that I have like a, a bias or preference for Western medicine. It's just the evidence is on the table like that. And so, you know, just seeing as believing, I guess, and, and now that has informed the way I look at the body and informed the way I use my needles to affect the body and 
and even down to how I think about what the digital sensation is supposed to be, what I'm trying to interact at that point. I'm not sure that that more metaphysical and this, this very deep material perspective that you're working with are mutually exclusive. It, I mean, it sounds to me like they, that there are ways that they mutually inform each other. Certainly. I think our, our finite you know, human experience on this planet hasn't really quite reached that level. It's just a matter of time. Somebody brilliant or with more generations that different, they'll actually find that. And we've seen this all the time, right? Like now Western science realizing that meditation practices changes the brain, you know, like expressing gratitude actually makes you more happy. Like these things that Eastern traditions really, you know, it's not like, you know, hocus pocus, right? It's actually really substantial changes the body. So I totally agree. It's, it's just a matter of time before we come in full circle, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, sit down and talk about this. It's, it, it, and I just love it that an herb geek turns into, you know, a deep acupuncture. That's geek. Right. That's, you know, I, I like what you said earlier about how you never know how your life is actually going to go. You start off in one direction and you follow it, you follow it with all your heart and then other things open up. It's not that what you did before was wrong. Mm -hmm. it, it's just, you know, we travel these paths and they take us to completely unexpected places that we just cannot see from the beginning of starting off on any kind of a journey. That's right. You just got to go with yeah. the flow, right? Stay, stay true flow. to the medicine. Yeah. yeah. So if people would like to know more about what you're doing or attend one of your classes or somehow be able to get into their minds and practice this ability to look at the ancient stuff that we learned in school and the modern neurophysiology so that we can understand better from both sides. How do they get in touch with you? Well, the, the best way to is actually to study with me in person because I do upgrade and incorporate newest research and, and, and inform my own clinical experience. So that would be the best way to study with me in person. And if you want to find out, um, information about what my teaching schedule is, you can go to my, my website, which is www.neuro-meridian.net, neuro-meridian.net. And I, you know, I've listed my teaching schedule there. I also, for those that are active on social media, I have a Facebook page called Neuro Meridian Acupuncture. And uh, I also post events there. If you are unable to travel, then there's an option to study online with me. I am one of those presenters for healthy seminars. You can find some of my courses there. Otherwise, I do appear in um, different symposium and conference here and there. And so you can catch a little workshop with me if you're not quite ready to kind of dive headfirst into like, you know, days and days of neuroanatomy. You want to just kind of check it out and fill, fill out yeah, the so waters of it. You're not quite ready for the red pill yet. <laughs> yeah, so you want a red pill or the blue pills, right? Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, Pony, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a blast. It's a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.